morning. It's good to be with you again this morning. And um, if my voice goes in and out, it's not because the microphone's messed up. Um, I have I'm a little bit under the weather, and I coached a soccer game yesterday. So <clears throat> um, my voice is not, not recovered yet of an hour of screaming at uh, seven-year-olds running around the running around the field. It was so much fun. I love coaching that age because I get to get out on the field and run around with them and go, no, go this way, go that way. So, um, but it was a lot of fun and I'm, I'm very thankful for that. Thankful for the opportunity to be outside of the church walls and engaging others around me in the community. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. And I wanna encourage you to do the same. Find ways to get outside of your little bubble, outside of your little Christian friends, and actually take a step forward in loving the people around you. And so with that, let's pray, and we're gonna dive back into the book of Galatians. We're in our last passage in the book of Galatians. We're in um, chapter six, verses 11 through 18. And then um, next week, We'll do one big sermon just to wrap up everything. We'll do one big, huge review of where we've been over the last six months. Um, but we're drawing to the end. So let's pray that we get the message of Galatians rooted in our heart um, this week and next. So if you will, let's, let's pray and then we'll get into the text. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this day. A day where your bride can gather and glory only in the cross. A day when we're reminded that we are wretched and impotent on our own and you, God, are rich in mercy and took dead things like us and made them alive. God, help us to this day see the cross clearly. Some of us need to blow the dust off of the cross to see it with new eyes. Some of us need to see it clearly for the first time. Lord, we pray that you would meet us here today, that you would be our teacher through the power of your spirit and the truth of your word, we would be radically transformed. That we might live, leave this place more like you than we entered. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Galatians 6, starting with verse 11 and following. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me 
and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. For now on, let no one cause me trouble. For I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. What we have seen in Paul's letter is a man who was arrested by the gospel and radically transformed by faith. And it was this gospel that then took him to the Gentile world to preach it. And when he showed up in Galatia, as he preached, lives were changed and the church was birthed. And after a while, Paul, after establishing that church, moved on to plant new churches in new cities. And let me stop right there. If you have not emailed the team in D.C., written them encouragement, the team in Tampa, or have not prayed for them, they desperately need that. The honeymoon's over. It's not cool to be a church planner anymore. It's hard. And as I sat with Joey and Paige Craft. And Nathan Knight and Andy Knight this weekend, I was convicted. And once again, resolute in my desire to see new churches planted. Because our cities are desperate for them. The people in them are desperate. They do not have a way to hear the gospel unless we go out. And that's exactly what God did. With Paul. He sent him out to plant churches all over. But in Galatia, as he left, behind him came false teachers, those who would take the gospel and not totally deny it, but just change it a little bit. Just smooth off a hard corner here, add a little something here. And they began to take the church in a different direction. So Paul pins this letter. We have noticed from the very beginning that Paul's playing no games. He has been as forceful, and the language in this book has been so forceful because he is competing for the gospel. And lives are at stake. So he sits down, writes this letter, and he gets to the end. And in verse 11, Paul reaches out to his secretary or scribe, and you can just hear it. He grabs the pen, and he writes in his own hand. And he draws attention to the large letters. Usually Paul would do this at the end of the letter just to authenticate it was from him. But here he grabs it. He didn't just sign his name on the bottom. He writes. 
our attention to that. Why would Paul do that? There are many theories about the large letters that Paul had bad eyesight. His arm was messed up. His hand was crippled from persecution. But I think the fact is this. In the context of this letter, Paul gets to the end and he does not want you to miss the point. He wants to draw his hearer's attention directly to the point. Kind of like you do when you send a text in all capital letters. Or you, on the end of an email, might hit the bold underline italics buttons. Like, if you read through this email, that's great and all, but don't miss this. That's what Paul's doing. So we should not miss this. So when the pen hits the apostle's hand, what does he want to emphasize? What does he draw our attention to? What's the central point of this entire letter? It's the central point of all of human history. It's the central point of the biblical narrative. It's the central point of all things. It's the central point of the gospel. It's the cross. It is the cross in big, bold, italics, underlined letters. We would be remiss today if we miss that point with all the other things in this passage because there's a ton of them. Paul's point, the vital issue at stake is the same issue that's at stake in our lives on a daily basis. Do we correctly understand and live in light of the cross? It's the central point. And in verse 12, he points back and kind of takes one last parting shot at the false teachers. And he basically says that they want to make a good impression in the flesh. This is their motivation. Not only are they messing up the message, they're motivated wrongly. And he says they're, they want to make a good impression in the flesh. These guys were concerned more about their impression on others and making making um, much of themselves than they were the essentials of the gospel. And what it really meant to be identified with the crucified Christ and bring glory to God. These guys were watering down the gospel. And they were doing it because they wanted to be accepted socially and because they wanted to avoid persecution. They were living in the flesh. Paul points out not to listen to these guys. That it was very easy to take shots at these guys for Paul because he saw what they were. And I want you to understand that these false teachers are all around us today. And my question to you is, can you identify them? 
Do you know how to listen well? Do you know the gospel well enough now that we've taken six months to go through Galatians so that when you read or when you hear or when you see things that are just a bit off, can you point them out? Well, here's Paul's list. He says that false teachers focus more on external things than internal things. He points directly at these false teachers and says, they're all worried about rules and outward living. They make that more important than the cross of Christ. But the gospel focuses on the heart. God has always been about the heart and not about external things. External things come later. It's about, Paul points out in verse 15, being a new creation. Secondly, people who live the Christian life but avoid persecution at all cost should be avoided. Jesus had something to say about that in the Gospels. He said, if they persecute me, guess what? They will persecute you. Does it mean that we go out looking for persecution? But it means that we don't shy away from it and that we are bold. You see, if we're focused on the flesh, then we're focused on glory for me and power for me and money for me. And then when things get hard, what happens? When suffering comes, what happens? If your faith is built on that kind of thing, it all goes away. Those teachers hightail it when suffering comes. Because nothing, nothing in the flesh speaks to suffering. Only the cross, only the gospel can make sense of suffering. False teachers make lists of rules that they can't keep themselves. They're hypocrites. They lump lists of rules onto people and weight them down and they can't even live by them themselves. And lastly, they're just downright arrogant. The cross brings humility. You see, these false teachers, these Judaizers were focused on padding the church stats. See, when they returned back to Jerusalem for the annual Judaizers meeting, um, they wanted to boast. They wanted to be the one that could stand up and say humbly, We're humbly reporting that because of our work in Galatia, circumcisions are up 40%. We laugh, but we're guilty. We laugh, but the first question we ask is, how many people are in your church? How many people are being baptized? 
Well, if baptism is a direct correlation to regeneration, then I'm all for it. But if we're baptizing people that we don't know are even saved, then what's the use? You see, the false teachers had taken a religion of the heart and they had turned it outward to something superficial. And they had changed the message of the gospel. And for this, Paul is writing with big, bold letters. But before you and I quickly pick up stones and loosen up our arms and start to throw them, much of what we do in the name of God and of church is just as superficial and just as dead and it insidiously promotes self. How many of us pay more attention to our public side than our heart? We look good on Sunday. When somebody asks us how we're doing, we're great. How much time do we spend worrying about what we do rather than who we are? How many of us are living out a form of American Christianity that does everything it can to avoid persecution at all costs? I'm not going across the street to share with him because he'll slam the door in my face. I'm not going to love my neighbor. You don't understand, Jeff. You don't know my neighbor. I'm not going to love a family member who's fallen into sin for the 1,000th time. They need to just learn something from the consequences of their sin. going to walk with them anymore. It just hurts too much. I might lose my job if I say something about Christ. How many of us continually turn to the scriptures as a rule book and we do it to our kids and we load them up with rules rather than take them to the cross and teach them the gospel that sets them free. And how much of what we do in the name of Christ is really about us? It's about our glory. It's about our name. It's about our little kingdom. It's about the praise of man. See, Paul is warning us that there's an empty religion that masks itself as Christianity. That has to do with lots of outward stuff, the flesh and self-exaltation. But has little to do with the cross. And he is reminding us through this letter that a religion without the cross of Christ as its central point is absolutely dead. And in contrast, verse 14, he points to something else. It's not that. It's this. 
He says, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Now, but far be it from me is a very uh, sweet way to say that. It's a bit stronger. It's the same phrase translated in other places, may it never be. God forbid, if you want to go King James Version. You see, rather than boasting in anything else, and I would encourage you to read, Paul, of all people, had things to boast about. Go today and read Philippians 3. He had many things to boast about and he counted them all as loss. Rather than boasting in anything of himself, he chose the utterly despicable, the horrific, the symbol of torture and death. The cross. He chose that to boast in. This is my boast, he says. This is my glory. He's yelling now, I'm sure, just through a pen. This is my obsession. The cross of Christ. So why the cross? Why the cross? Because ultimately, the gospel is not about us. Because in the cross... God is reconciling the world to himself in Christ. For God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That in him we might become the righteousness of God. Why the cross? Because it's not about morality and being good. It's about being a new creation in Christ. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. It's all about the new creation. Your baptism, your baptism means nothing if you are not a new creation. If you don't walk into the water praising God that God has rescued you. That Christ died on the cross for your sins, taking on your punishment. Died, was buried, rose again on the third day. And in that, you glory. Now when you walk out in the water, and you go under water, you go under as a sign that you have died with Christ. And you come up as a sign that you have been raised with him. All outward religious ceremonies and activities, no matter how good they are, mean nothing in light of your salvation. The new creation, being born again of the Spirit, is all that counts. You see, when Jesus met with Nicodemus, 
Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse, um, chapter 3, verse 7. What was he saying? It wasn't just a little fun, light-hearted children's Bible story. Jesus was leading this man's heart to eternal life. And he says, you must be born again. How many people have claimed to believe, have been baptized outwardly, joined the church, but the cross never becomes their boast. It is never their glory. And they show little signs of a new birth. You see, the cross does not let us live. Does not let us live with a dead faith, with one that is just filled with a bunch of intellectual knowledge. It will not leave us there. We can't just have empty, warm, fuzzy thoughts about Jesus and be okay. The new creation does not just agree that Christ died for sinners. No. The new creation says, I'm alive because he died. I have been made new because he died. And it glories in the cross. Those who've been crucified and raised again to the new life with Christ, they boast. They brag. They glory. They make much of Jesus. Why? Because it's all they got. They got nothing else. Colossians 1, 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased, talking about Jesus, to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. In, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Paul was obsessed with the cross of Christ. It was his glory. You see, Paul saw with clear eyes that the central truth of Christianity is the Lord Jesus Christ crucified for the salvation of sinners whom Paul says in 1 Timothy he himself was the chief. Here's the point. And I would ask you to write this down in big, bold letters so you don't forget. Boasting in the cross happens when you are on the cross. Boasting in the cross happens when you are on the cross. What does Paul mean when he says that he can only boast in the cross because by it the world was crucified to him and he to the world? He saw... And understood something about the cross that often we miss. He himself was crucified with Christ 
And it is no longer him who lives, but Christ who lives in him. Pointing back to Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul says. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. When the truth of the cross recreates you from the inside out, when you are struck by the fact that you are more sinful than you will ever know and that God is more holy than you can ever imagine, the cross becomes your obsession because it sets you free. The apostles' identification with the crucified Christ shaped everything about him. He would write in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, all things are new. No matter how unpalatable the cross was to the people of his day, he saw this apparatus of death and suffering as the most beautiful and central truth of God's redemptive story and his redemptive story so how do you see the cross how is it, is it the central focus of your redemptive story can you even see it or is it like the picture that you go out and you spend all this time picking out, and you spend a bunch of money, and you find the perfect place to hang it in your house, and you sit and you just gaze at it. I mean, when you get it there, you're just like, oh, isn't that beautiful? Look at that. You sit there for hours just gazing at this picture. And before long, a couple months go by, year goes by, two years go by, five years goes by, and you don't even see the picture anymore. It's still hanging in the very same place. It's still there. It's still as beautiful as it was the day you bought it. But it fades into the distance. And if somebody came in and stole it, you wouldn't even know it was gone. And that was what Paul was speaking to the church about. He says, somebody has come in and stolen the cross from you and you do not even see it. You don't even know it. And this is not, this is an illustration. Where, it, do you even see the cross behind me anymore? You know, when we first built this building, that was, that was an awesome display of the cross. And now, it's kind of designed bad though because it's a little low. But now, all this stuff gets in the way and even though we have lights shining on it, I bet most of us never even look at it. We don't even notice it's there. It's just hanging on the back wall. It's something that our brother Jason fashioned with a chisel and some wood. That's it. Why are we so prone to forget? Why is the cross so offensive to people? Because the cross acts more like a mirror than a picture. 
for most of us, and at least for me, looking in the mirror is not often a pleasant experience. Because the mirror doesn't give us a sweet little picture. Doesn't give us this picturesque idea. It tells us the truth about ourselves. Tells me I'm getting older. Tells me I got hair growing out of my nose. I mean, it just tells you some stuff that you don't want to hear. It tells me that I'm at, my forehead's getting bigger, my waistline's getting bigger. It's just, it just tells you stuff you don't want to see. And the cross is that for us, and oftentimes that's why we don't want to look at it. Because what it does is it reminds us that we're sinners under the righteous wrath of God and that there is no way we can save ourselves. We are helpless and impotent. It reminds us that Christ bore our sin and curse because there was no other way we could be set free. And every time we truly gaze at the cross, we hear the voice of Christ saying to us, I'm here because of you. It is your sin I'm bearing, your curse I'm suffering, your debt I'm paying, your death I am dying. The cross is offensive. The cross, because it's the greatest monument to our wickedness and our impotence. But yet at the same time, it's the greatest monument to the sovereign love of God. The cross is an expression of God's wrath towards sin and as well an expression of his love toward us. The cross forces you to do something with it. It can't be left on the wall. It can't just sit back there. You can't ignore it. It either condemns you or it sets you free. If you've never been offended by the cross, then you probably don't properly understand the cross. I say that because the cross, to be understood correctly, kills any ideas or schemes of self, self-salvation. And that's all of our prideful human dilemma. You see, the cross offends the morally conservative because it tells them that they're no better than the immoral liberals that they point fingers at. And the cross offends people who are all about self-actualization and being a better person because it tells them that they're, they're so weak, they can't make themselves better. And it offends the religious because it strips away every bit of merit. I don't care how many times you've studied the Bible this week. I don't care how much of the Bible you have memorized or how many times you've read it cover to cover. That's not the point. The point is, look to the cross And it tells you, you've earned nothing. Absolutely nothing. 
God has paid your debt for you. Christ earned your salvation and lavishes it on you as an act of grace. Tim Keller says the cross says you can't become a Christian by trying. You can only become a Christian through dying. Christ must die for you to be a Christian and then you must die to self-salvation and self-righteousness. So when was the last time you stopped trying to escape the humiliation of the cross and you embraced it? You see, Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So today, are you grabbing a hold central understanding of this book and of the gospel that you cannot save yourself that you are more wretched and sinful than you will ever know and that God is more holy than you can ever imagine and you got a problem rich in mercy sent his son to live a sinless life to be tortured beaten and hung on a tree as a thief that on that cross he took all of God's wrath for you he died he was buried And on the third day, he rose again to set you free. You see, that's what Paul says at the end of our passage. He says, all who walk by this rule or this canon, this understanding, all of those who walk by this, that it's all about the cross and new creation. Those who walk by that, by that gospel, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Those who will humble themselves, believing themselves to be the chief of sinners like Paul and dying to all illusions of self-salvation and putting their complete trust in Christ's death on the cross. It is this one. This people who Christ, who God lavishes his mercy and peace upon. And he ends the letter with this. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is what the gospel is all about. It is by grace that you have been set free. It is by grace that you live free. It is by grace you will die free. It's all about grace. And that grace flows to you 
from the cross. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, today, the cross stands before us as a great immovable monument testifying to your love for us and your determination to bring us into your presence. Help us not lose sight not lose sight of the cross. Let's not grow weary for the cross tells us that you are for us. Paul writes in Romans 8, 31 and 32. If God is for us, then who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him, graciously give us all things. Lord, this day and every day we draw a breath, would you help us boast only 